Welcome back, Bedford Middle School students. Today we have a packed episode with a subservient Swiss postmaster. We'll also have a reunion of the Willoughbys with baby Ruth. And we find out what the realtor has finally done with the house. Chapter 13, The Obsequious Postmaster. Far away in a small village in northwest Switzerland, the postmaster was diligently sorting the incoming mail as he did every morning. He was a tall, thin man with a jetting chin and large, clumsy hands. His name was Hans-Peter von Schlüsseldorf. He lived alone in the village with his dog, Horst, who came with him each morning to work and who now lay snoring on the floor of the tiny post office. Ach! exclaimed the postmaster in frustration as once again he dropped several letters onto the wooden floor. Horst opened one eye, yawned, then rose to his large feet, ambled over, picked up the dropped letters in his mouth, and gave them back to the postmaster. Donka, the postmaster said to the dog. He was grateful for the help because it was difficult for him to bend. He had been frozen solid once, years before, while climbing a nearby mountain, And though he had been successfully thawed after his rescue, his joints remained stiff. With the retrieved mail back in his hand, he continued his sorting. The wall behind him was lined with postal boxes. It was where the village inhabitants collected their mail. One by one, he added letters to the small boxes. The tiny bell at the top of the door rang as a woman entered with her little boy. He recognized her because she came each day for her mail though she rarely received anything except her utility bills and an occasional advertising brochure. Guten Tag, Frau. He began to greet her in his usual friendly fashion, then remembered the language situation. This woman spoke only English, he corrected himself. I mean, good morning, he glanced toward the box in the M section, remembering her initial. But M was empty. No mail for you, I'm afraid, but I have not finished my sorting yet, so perhaps you will wait. He hoped she would. He was a bachelor, after all, and this was a lone woman, not unattractive, tall and thin like himself, and a little mysterious. Hans Peter liked mysteries. All he knew about the woman was that she had been buried within a luxurious railroad car for years by an avalanche with her child, but had survived. He had heard that when the rescuers finally rescued her, she was wearing a silk dress, had her hair curled and combed, and was sipping tea while she read a book about whales. Her first words upon the rescue, he had heard, were, Thank goodness, I have read this book 42 times, and every other one even more often than that. Feeling that it would be rude not to include her child in his greeting, though in truth he did not much like children, The postmaster turned to the boy and repeated his good morning. He speaks German, the woman said. The postmaster smiled painfully and said, Guten Tag, to the boy. His smile was pain because he had heard the boy try to speak what he thought was German. He simply used English words and added extra syllables with a vaguely Germanic sound. Hello, Schmilfenhofen, the boy said cheerfully. 
Mish day, isn't it Schlitz? Everyone in the village thought it would be rude to point out the flawed German and help the child to learn the language correctly. The Swiss are scrupulously polite. Even the schoolmaster, who taught all the village children, including this strange little boy who had spent his formative years in a buried train car, simply ignored the odd attempt at language. At least the child was good at math. The woman was looking at the postal boxes somewhat critically. Your filing system leaves much to be desired. You put an S into the C box. I expect it was a clumsy error. In addition, the envelopes are not aligned well. They should be straightened thusly. She walked briskly behind the counter, removed several letters, lined them up by the corners, tapped them on the countertop to the perfect alignment, and then replaced them in the box. I can certainly see the difference, madam, the postmaster said. Thank you. He did admire the woman's skill with her hands and the quickness with which she was now organizing the boxes. He found himself thinking that he liked her hair as well, the way it fell around her shoulders in a soft, luxuriant waves, and her lips, the redness, the moistness of them. He turned away embarrassed at his own thoughts. Do you need any stamps today, Frau? he asked. Or should I call you Mrs.? It's Ms., she replied. Or in your language, I expect it is what, Frolin? She chuckled slightly and straightened the fingers of her gloves. Carefully, because there was a small wrinkle at one knuckle, and wrinkle made her very nervous and fretful. It would be Frau, he said politely, almost bowing, because you are a married woman. His heart almost broke as he said these words. If only... No, Postmaster von Schlüsseldorf, I am not, she said. I beg your pardon, madam, but for many years I have been mailing off letters, some marked urgent, to Herr Melanoff. Before you were found, I sent the letters from the rescue workers. Some were so sad. I remember a day when they thought they had located you, but it proved to be only the rusted remains of a snowplow that was buried back in 1949. Such hopes dashed. Disappointing news for her husband. They told me that day, I remember. I believe it was four years ago. Ex-husband, the woman announced in a clipped voice. Could it be? Dare he hope? The postmaster placed his hand over his heart, which beat nervously under his blue uniform. I see. Uh, perhaps I misunderstood, madame. Darling, she said, and the postmaster's heart leaped. But then he realized it was her son to whom she spoke. Stand up straight so that your trouser links are not mismatched. It makes me very nervous when things are not in order. The boy, who had been sprawled on the floor patting the dog, stood up straight at his mother's command. He was not wearing trousers, exactly, but the postmaster did not want to correct her. The boy was wearing lederhosen, short leather pants that were common among the folks' villages of Switzerland. Below the lederhosen, his knees were thin and wobbly, High woolen socks encased his lower legs. Is that better, Mutti? Nietzsche Street. You know I don't speak German, dear, she replied. Ach, I forgot some plunks. Sorry, Broughton, the boy said. Are my pant legs nice and straight now? She examined him and nodded. Yes, try to stand with your weight evenly distributed, won't you, dear? And adjust your shirt collar. She then told her son... I was just explaining to the postmaster that I'm no longer married. She glanced toward the counter where Hans Peter stood. 
After all these years of no reply from my boy's father, dear Ah von Schlissendorf, and who knows that better than you, such a long-lasting silence from Commander Melanoff, your kindly Swiss laws have allowed me to resume my single status. And so, the postmaster stammered, Yes, I am available, she said to him. Please smooth your lapel, it's a little must, and see if perhaps tomorrow morning when you shave, you could even those sideburns. I believe the right one is a fraction shorter than the left. Yes, of course. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. Come along now, son, she turned to the boy. I want to be at the market at precisely five minutes past ten. We're already twenty seconds behind. How he loved a woman who was so precise, just like a swish train coming into a station. Hans Peter allowed himself to hope for the first time in his life for a future that might perhaps include a postmistress. He bowed to her, clicking his heels slightly, and she nodded a polite goodbye. Schlee you later, Alligator Plotz, the boy said. Bye-bye, Horstwurst, he added, speaking to the dog. Then he followed his mother out of the post office and into the village's main street. Watching the woman's tall, straight back as she walked toward the market, the postmaster fingered his sideburns and planned his next morning's meticulous shave with a shiver of excitement. Chapter 14. Re-Encountering an Infant Nanny and the Willoughbys were out for a walk. This was something that old-fashioned families did from time to time, to expose themselves to invigorating fresh air. Nanny had donned her blue cape, which was the official uniform for nannies. Walk briskly, children, said Nanny, and swing your arms. They did so. Skip if you like, Nanny said. Skipping is very healthful. What is skipping? Jane asked. Yes, what is skipping? asked the twins. It's like this, dolts, Tim told them, and he skipped ahead of them to demonstrate. No more saying of the word dolt, Nanny announced. I dislike it. What about dodo, Jane asked. Well, let's allow dodo for now, Nanny said after thinking it over. If someone does something really stupid, it is permissible to call that person a dodo. And, she added, looking at Tim, who had returned, if you think that was skipping, you are a dodo. This is skipping. She demonstrated skipping to the corner of the block with her cape flying behind her. She turned and beckoned to the children, and they skipped toward her one by one. Nanny gave some further instructions. A little more left foot, Tim. No timidity. Go flat out, eh? Good job. Much better than before, B. And a pat on the back for Jane, who stumbled and skinned her knee but was heroically not crying. Now, having walked for several blocks and skipped for the last one, the children found that they were on a familiar street. They had not been back to this street since the day they had trudged here hauling a wagon containing a basket with a baby in it. Tim nudged Barnaby A. and nodded meaningfully toward the mansion that loomed ahead. Both of the twins gave nervous glances, but then looked away and concentrated on remarks about the quality of the asphalt in the street and a particularly odd-shaped cloud in the sky. Jane fell silent and had a sad look. She had liked the baby, actually, though when its hair was cropped, she had found it homely. From time to time, she had missed it and wondered about it. Nanny skipped ahead, not noticing that a hush had fallen upon the children. 
The windows are repaired, Barnaby B. pointed out in a whisper, and the cat has been fed, his twin noticed. It was thin before, but now it's pudgy. Someone has mowed the lawn, Tim observed. Shh, said Jane suddenly. I hear a giggle. They stood still, the four of them, and after a moment, Nanny returned. She had skipped the entire length of the block, assuming the children were behind her. Now she came back to see why they'd stopped. The important thing in terms of fresh air intake, Nanny said to them, is continuity. If you stop, you lose your continuity. Why ever are you standing about like dodos? You are breathing stagnant air. The children shifted their feet and didn't reply. Tim began to hum a bit. The twins stared at the pavement. What's that sound? Nanny asked suddenly. I'm just humming the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Tim explained. I try to do it in its entirety twice a day. Usually no one hears me. Sometimes I do it in the bathroom. It is possible to hum while brushing one's teeth. No, no, I meant that sound. Nanny held up one finger to silence them, and now they could all hear the delicious giggle from the porch of the mansion. Mm, I think we should go home, Barnaby A. said nervously. Yes, isn't it lunchtime? Weren't you planning vichyssoise for lunch, Nanny? Asked Barnaby B. Let's skip home, suggested Tim. He did a few tentative moves of his feet and arms. It's a very sweet sound, Jay said, glancing at Nanny. It's a baby, Nanny announced, on the porch of that mansion. Let's go look. I believe, Tim said, that it is quite against the law to enter a private gate and cross a private walk and ascend the steps of a private porch. I think we might very well be arrested, Nanny, if we investigate this any further. Let's leave at once. Fifty points off anyone who does not leave immediately. Nonsense, said Nanny. You stopped that silly point thing weeks ago. Come, close the gate behind you in case there is a dog confined in the yard. I once knew someone whose spaniel fled when a gate was left open, and it was never seen again, and three members of the family died of grief. Jane took Nanny's hand and followed her through the grate. I do love babies, Jane confided. I've always wanted one. I remember when we found... Tim interrupted her. I don't believe people die of grief, he muttered. He came through the gate as well and lashed it behind him. Only the twins remained on the sidewalk looking nervous. Yes, they do, Nanny told him. They waste away. I've known at least 12 people who have died of grief. It's a terrible way to go. It is indeed. A loud voice suddenly said, all of them, even Nanny, jumped. A large man with a thick mustache had appeared suddenly through a door that opened onto the porch. He was wearing a tweed jacket and a polka dot bow tie, and he was carrying a box of cookies. I myself came very close to dying of grief not long ago, he announced. How do you do? I am Commander Melanoff. What are you doing on my porch? Have a ginger cookie? Nanny took one. We heard a lovely giggle from your porch and came to investigate. I've learned over the course of my many years that it is a bad idea, usually to investigate piteous weeping, but always a fine thing to look into a giggle. She bit into the cookie. Delicious, she said. Twins, she called to the other side of the fence. There are cookies. Timidly, the two Barnabies came through the gate and approached the porch. How do you do and thank you for the ginger cookie, Nanny said, extending her hand which the commander shook. 
I am sorry to hear that you almost died of grief. Have you recovered? I'm somewhat better, he replied. He passed the box of cookies around to the children. My source of solace has been this lovely infant. He walked toward the end of the large porch where a grinning baby with curly hair stood grasping the side of her playpen, and they followed him. It's not the same baby, Jane whispered to Tim. Its hair isn't stubbly. It grew, Dolt, since Mother chopped it off. Tim looked nervously towards Nanny to see if she had heard the word Dolt, which she had so recently forbidden. But she was leaning over the baby, smiling and talking in a baby-like voice. What's your daughter's name, Commander? she asked. Oh, I see. Ruth. Sweet monogram. Yes, her name is Ruth, but she is not my daughter. She's my, uh, ward. Oh, lovely, said Nanny. You are an old-fashioned family like us. We are four worthy orphans with a no-nonsense Nanny. Like Mary Poppins, suggested the man with a pleased look of recognition. Not one bit like that fly-by-night woman, Nanny said with a sniff. It almost gives me diabetes just to think of her, all those disgusting spoonfuls of sugar. None of that for me. I am simply a competent and professional nanny. And you are a, let me think, bereaved benefactor, suggested the commander. Exactly. A bereaved benefactor with a ward. Like the uncle in the secret garden. What was his name? Oh, yes. Archibald Craven. Oh, my, no. Not one bit like that ill-tempered scoundrel of an uncle. I'm simply a well-to-do widower who happened to find a baby on my doorstep. We are both wonderfully old-fashioned, aren't we? Hello, baby Ruth. Nanny turned back to the baby and said in a sweet, high-pitched voice, Aren't you fortunate to have found... She hesitated. What does she call you? She asked the man. She doesn't speak yet, but I've been a bit worried about the question of what she will call me. I do like the sound of papa, he said, and then paused and dabbed his eyes with a handkerchief. But brings back sad memories, Nanny asked sympathetically. Indeed. Well, there is time. Children. She turned to the four Willoughbys. This is baby Ruth. They nodded awkwardly. Give her a ginger snap, she directed them. They're not too spicy, are they, Commander? An infant this age shouldn't have spicy food. No, he said. They're quite bland. She likes them, but thank you for alerting me to that. I am new to this, and sometimes it is hard to know what is proper. I've been thinking, actually, about looking for a nanny. I don't suppose... He gave her a questioning look. She's ours, said Barney B.A. in an outraged tone. And we're orphans, or at least almost orphans, so we need her. We must go now, said his twin. It's almost time for dinner. We haven't even had lunch yet, B., Nanty pointed out. I meant the cat's dinner. It's almost time for our cat's dinner. The children moved toward the porch steps. Well said Nanny to the commander. It was lovely to meet you, but the children seem eager to move on. Perhaps our paths will cross again. Goodbye to you, Commander Melanoff. And bye-bye to you as well, baby Ruth, she said to the infant who waved back with a chubby hand. Wait, I don't know your names, Commander Melanoff said suddenly, just as Nanny was latching the gate behind her. The children were halfway down the street. I'm just Nanny, she called back. 
The children are Tim, A, B, and Jane. A and B. How odd. They're twins, Nanny explained. I see, he replied, though he didn't. They are all Willoughby's, he nodded. Goodbye, then, he called. He turned to the playpen and to Ruth, because it was time to take her inside for her afternoon nap. But he had a puzzled look on his face. Willoughby, he thought. There was something vaguely familiar about that name. Chapter 15. A Regrettable Transaction Uh-oh, Barnaby A. said as they approached their own house at the end of their outing. What's that on the sign? They had all become very accustomed to the for sale cheap sign that was still tacked to the window box and to the tacked on edition that announced the reduction of the price. And they were so accustomed to scurrying into their disguises and poses at the approach of prospective buyers that Jane could become a lamp in very few seconds and Tim could burrow under his fur rug in no time at all. Nanny took a little longer to transform herself into a statue of Aphrodite because, of course, she had to shed her clothes and powder herself and wrap herself in a sheet. All a little time-consuming. But it was routine by now. The real estate agent would call to announce a showing of the house, and all of them would automatically move into their places, waiting for the sound of her key in the front door lock. Usually the showings were very short. Sometimes the prospective buyers never even reached the upstairs. That was always a bit of a disappointment to Nanny, and she was thinking of moving her statue's position, perhaps to the parlor, where people would have a better view of Aphrodite. Curses, Tim said in horror as he ran forward and read aloud the further addition to the sign. Look at this. How could this have happened? We've been sold. Oh, no, Barnaby B. groaned. We should never have gone for a walk. Terrible things always happen when one is out for a walk, Jane pointed out sadly. Remember Little Red Riding Hood? And oh dear Hansel and Gretel? Nanny opened the door and hurried inside. On the hall table, she found a hastily written note. It's from the real estate agent, she explained with a worried look, and read it aloud to the children, who had gathered around her. Congratulations! I'm sorry you weren't home when I called to announce our visit, but the house looked lovely and smelled so appealing. Raisin cookies, I think. And the prospective buyer fell in love with it and has given me a ton of money. You have two weeks to leave. Please feel free to take your undies. Good luck. Oh, no, the twins wailed. Drat, said Tim with a scowl. Jane stamped her foot and began to cry. Let us not waste time with tears and useless expostulations, Nanny told them. What if there was a story in a book with a well-worn maru leather binding? What would good old-fashioned people do in this situation? They would call the sheriff, Tim said. Murder the villain, the twins suggested. Jane simply continued to sob, and Nanny handed her a lace-trimmed hanky. They would make a plan, Nanny announced. But first, she added, heading toward the kitchen and reaching for her apron where it hung on a wall hook, they would bake a lemon souffle. She opened the refrigerator and took out some eggs. While the souffle was in the oven, and during that time they were all required to tiptoe, because heavy footsteps can ruin a baking souffle. Not many people know this, Nanny pointed out, and that is why there are so many ruined souffles in the world. The mail was delivered in a whoosh 
through the mail slot of the front door. No, wailed Tim, holding up a postcard. They've again survived. Everyone tiptoed to his side, even Nanny, though she checked the oven time first, because a souffle must be very carefully timed, she had told them, and not many people were careful enough about this aspect of souffle baking. Tim read the card aloud. Dear ones, ha, they all said aloud, but quietly, because of the souffle. Excessive noise can be the death of a souffle, Nanny had explained. Such an adventure! The helicopter crashed and the pilot plummeted into the raging volcano. Cleverly, we clung to a rotor and were spun to safe ground. Only the pilot was lost, and it didn't matter because he was Presbyterian. We wonder why the house is still unsold. Perhaps it is because of the cat. Please have her put to sleep. Jane looked down at the cat, who just rubbed against her legs with a loud purr. She sleeps every night, and a lot during the day as well, she said. Why should we put her to sleep more often? When would she pounce about chasing bits of fluff? Her brothers looked meaningfully at each other, wondering whether to explain to Jane what their parents had meant. Nanny shook her head at them, so they remained silent. Does it say anything else, or just end with the cruel sentence about the cat? Barnaby A. asked. A bit more, Tim continued reading. Now, off to our next excursion, and this one on our own. No more guides for us. We are to climb an alp, one that has never been successfully climbed. It is cluttered with frozen bodies, but we are prepared. We have bought pitons for our feet and crampons to attach to our heads. I don't think pitons are for your feet, Barnaby B. said. I read a book about mountain climbing. Pitons are spikes that you hammer into the ice. I read the same book as B, said his twin. Crampons are for your feet. For your boots, actually. Why would they put them on their heads? Because they are dolts, Tim said, remembering again that Nanny had outlawed the word and looking at her defiantly. They are dolts indeed, Nanny said. She stared at the postcard and murmured. I myself am Presbyterian. Jane was on her knees, playing with the cat. Where are we going to live? She asked piteously. And can the cat come? The kitchen timer buzzed, and they tiptoed to the kitchen to eat souffle and make a plan. There you have it, chapters 13 through 15 of The Willoughbys by Lois Lowry. Join us next episode where we will go on an excursion with two terrible tourists.